The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning again. If you got your Bibles, you can open those up to Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter one, my name is Chase and I am one of the pastors here. I wanna share with you just a few things. Number one, uh, we've got this great ministry we call Launchpad where children grow in Christ and we need some help. And we're gonna talk today about rebuilding and what our opportunities are. And it might be that your opportunity is to help at 9.30 check-in. You can see some of these needs have been met. We need a couple more people in nursery. We need people in preschool and a lot in elementary at seven, uh, seven people for 11 a.m. So there's great opportunities there to really commend the word of God to the next generation. Just two or three announcements in case you came in late. Um, First, obviously there is a variant of COVID spreading, so if you feel sick, please stay home. If you don't have COVID and you feel sick, please stay home. We don't wanna catch anything from anybody. Um, If you're concerned about the spread, watch online as many of you are right now, you're welcome to do that. And of course, if you would like a mask, we have them available. So that is number one. Number two, as TJ mentioned, TBC Together, which we had scheduled for tonight, has been postponed because we have a staff member who's tested positive, and then we have several who've had primary exposure. So we will have new dates for that coming up really soon. If you RSVP'd for TBC Together, your spot is saved for that. And finally, Today is the last day to get early registration for men's conference, which means you get $25 off. It's in two weeks. It's going to be at Camp Tejas, about an hour and 10 minutes away. And it is just a super time of guys getting together to know the Lord, to know one another, having a great time together as well, um, eating some really good things. So I'd love for you to be part. I'm going to be there again today. If you grab a brochure or go on the website, you get $25 off. Now you might think, I don't need $25 off. Well, congratulations. Look, sign up today and give your wife, if you're married, a $25 gift card. She'll be really excited. She wants you to go to men's conference every year, right? Great opportunities there. Well, today we start a new series. Last week, our executive pastor, Danny Cunningham, it would help me if I turn this thing on. Uh, last week, our exec- or two weeks ago, our executive pastor, Danny Cunningham, who's one of our elders, kind of walked us through history of TBC, how this church got to where we are. And then last week, one of our elders, Austin Skaggs, really helped us to consider what the future looks like as we move forward as Temple Bible Church. And so today, we're going to dive into Ezra and Nehemiah, and I'll tell you why we're going to do that. I and Dave and Tim, other two guys on our teaching team, will be walking through this for the next several weeks, and we'll do this because we want to be the church rebuilding. So it makes a lot of sense if you want to be the church rebuilding and you're coming out of maybe a 24-month pandemic, maybe, Lord willing, we're on the end of this thing that we look about 2,400 years back to see a time when God's people were rebuilding. But before we do that, I want us to look at a painting. And this painting is uh, the painting of Everhard Jabach and his family. Now it's about 360 years old and it hangs in the Met in Manhattan. 
Charles Lebrun, who was this famous painter in France, he was the portraiture of King Louis XIV. He decorated the Louvre and Versailles, which evidently have nice decorations in them. I'm not really sure because I haven't been. Charles Lebrun is this famous painter, and he painted two of these. They're identical. This was the more prominent, but it was lost. People thought it was gone. The second one was in a gallery in Berlin. It burned down in World War II, so everybody thought this painting was lost forever until 2011, 2012. Someone found out it was in a private collection. It was donated to the Met in Manhattan, but it was in disrepair. You can see, if you look at the slide, it's really kind of split in two up near the top. It needed to be cleaned. There was all kind of structural work. So this guy, a guy named Michael Gallagher and his team, he restores old masterpieces and he set to work on this 300, at that time, 355 year old painting. And it was a 10 month restoration process. So he would steam it and let it sit. He would put more of these weights on it, just the right amount of pressure, just the right temperature, over and over on the back. And then they rolled the painting over, the most difficult part. And then they began to work on structural issues on the front. And then he began to touch it up. He looked where there were cracks. He looked where there were imperfections. There was a varnish on it that needed to be taken off because the varnish collected grime and muck over the ages. And so they stretched the painting, they put it back in its original place and then he began the work of touching it up. Lots of details to be covered. Then he put a new varnish on it after he had painted it. So clean and beautiful like it originally did, and now it hangs as a masterpiece for people to walk by and see its beauty. Well, why in the world would we talk about Everhard Yabach and his family today? I'm so glad you asked me that question. See, in Ephesians 2.10, the Bible says we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Greek word for that word workmanship or handiwork, as your translation might say, it's the word poema. It only appears twice in the New Testament here and in Romans 1.20. And it's masterpiece. It's like a poem, poema, but it really means his masterpiece. And it says we are his masterpiece. Now here's what we in America as individuals do with that. We read that and go, I'm God's masterpiece. And can I just tell you, no, you're not. Now, you're beautiful and you're wonderful. And if you don't think you're beautiful, post yourself on social media and everybody will tell you you're lovely, right? But this is we, plural, are his masterpiece, singular, collectively. The church is a masterpiece. We are created. There are these good works that Jesus prepared for us, his people, to do in culture for the display of God's glory among the nations. That was true. That's why Ezra is going to take people back to build the temple again. That's why we live and exist as the people of God today to display the glory of the painter, the artist, God. Now listen, there are cracks. The shine has sometimes been covered by dust and grime of the ages or by, by our own sin. There are places we need to be cleaned. There is structural work to be done. 
but our cornerstone is the same. Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and underneath all the brokenness, and there's plenty of it, there's this beautiful masterpiece called the Church of the Living God. So we go back to Ezra and Nehemiah. They were a people in exile, a people away from their home, a people who needed to be rebuilt just as much as their temple and their city wall needed to be rebuilt. So over a hundred years, 60 to a hundred years, 50,000 people went back. This guy named Zerubbabel led the first group. Then there was another wave led by a guy named Ezra. And then another wave led by a guy named Nehemiah about 13 years after Ezra. And they go and they rebuild the city wall. They rebuild the temple. But in the process, they are rebuilt as the people of God. So we wanna look in these books to see what God did in and through them as we consider what he might do in and through us, his people. I think they would move us to return, to repent, to rebuild, to recalibrate, to reestablish trust in the God of all creation. So I want us to read Ezra chapter one, and then we'll, we'll dive in. We could read Ezra chapter two, but it's 70 verses and it just lists people after people after people. And I feel like I'll do enough today by myself to put you to sleep without reading the list, okay? Ezra one, one through 11. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might be fulfilled. The word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns, whatever city you're living in in Babylon, let him be assisted by the men of this place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts besides freewill offerings for the house of God that's in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and Levites, everyone whose spirit got it stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem. All who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, gold, with goods and beasts, with costly wares besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, the king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. And all the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Now what is going on and what happens? What can we observe and what can we see? What can we learn from Ezra chapter one? And then what are some takeaways we can get from Ezra chapter two without reading all of chapter two? The first thing 
is that God starts Cyrus's spirit to rebuild the temple. He's a pagan king, but when God moves in Cyrus, Cyrus moves according to God's plan. God is sovereign. That's really good news. What that means for you and me is that we are not held captive to the whims of a leader. We are not held captive to some foreign guy who might do crazy things and we think, oh gosh, what in the world is God with us? Is he going to take care of us? God's sovereign, nothing surprises him. He knows the end from the beginning. He declares it to be. God stirred Cyrus' spirit and Cyrus obeyed that the word of the Lord might be fulfilled. He made a proclamation and Cyrus, who's not a Jew, not one of God's people, says the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. The God of heaven has charged me. Cyrus recognizes that this is the one true God. Now what he does, some of it's not really unique for Cyrus, but some of it is. Cyrus was not like Nebuchadnezzar. When he captured a people and they were brought away to Babylon and they lived in Babylonia or other cities, he would let them build statues to their gods. He didn't always tear down the statues in the cities where they worship their idols. But there is this unique thing. This is the only instance because Israel didn't have statues. They had one place they worshiped. It was at the temple, one God, they worshiped the Lord of heaven and earth. So to send the people back and to pay for it is amazing. But God stirred Cyrus's spirit and God can stir the spirit of any leader he wants to today. Nothing is too difficult for him. The second thing we see is that God made a way for his people to go home. Verse three, whoever is among you, all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem. It's not a command, but it's this encouragement. You can, God be with you. Go and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Now, when we look at this, what we need to see is that God's sovereignty is a good thing. Sometimes people aren't really glad about the fact that God is sovereign. But it just thrills my heart because he knows the end from the beginning. He rules and reigns. Now, do we understand all the mechanics of this and how this works? Do we understand how it works that underneath his sovereignty there are spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places that would do battle against us, deceive us, accuse us? No, we do not understand all the mechanics of those things because we are not God. But he is and we can trust him. The third thing we see is that God provided for the mission in ways his people could not have imagined. Verse four, let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns, whatever city they lived in in Babylon, be assisted by the men of his place with silver, gold, with goods, and with beasts. So this is different than in Egypt when Israel plundered Egypt when the firstborn was killed in the Passover when the exodus happened from Egypt. The exodus is happening from exile and then we're told in verse six, all who are about them, the people in their neighborhoods with vessels of silver, gold, goods, beasts, costly wares. People just gave for them. God provided for the mission in a way that they couldn't have imagined. Now, why would this happen? Why would this happen? I think we have a pretty good answer to this. And I'd like you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. Because we can see 
why this happened, I think, and also clear up a verse that we just take out of context all the time. So when God is sending his people into Babylon in Jeremiah chapter 29, in verse four, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So people who are surviving, this is maybe when they were a kid or in their teens. Now they're 70, mid 70s, mid 80s, right? Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Now this is not a shock because God told his people from the beginning before the fall, Genesis chapter one, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. People don't obey, the flood happens. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That's what God tells Noah. The Tower of Babel happens. Then God changes the command to a promise. Abraham, I'm gonna send you and your people from your seed and offspring, all the nations will be blessed. You're going to multiply. In Babylon, in exile, he says, multiply there because they were to spread the image of God over all the earth. And he says in verse seven of Jeremiah 29, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. You think these people are your enemies, they're not your enemies, you seek their good. And you pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, in the good of the city you live, you will find your welfare. You seek the good of your city and you'll find good for you there. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Verse 10, thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call on me and pray to me and I will hear you. We read that and we think, oh, God's gonna do that next week. Well, he might, but for these people, God was faithful to them in Babylon, but it was 70 years before he's bringing them back. Then you will call on me and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when, when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you. That's what's happening right now in Ezra. God is restoring their fortunes. They've sought the good of the cities that they were in. And now the people of those cities are seeking their good as they go back to worship their God. It's just an amazing thing. Next we see in Ezra chapter one that God's people rose up to go. Then rose up the heads of the father's houses, Judah, Benjamin, the priest, and the Levites. And they were aided as they went. There was a time when it was just clear throughout temple from this church and others that God's people were on the move. They were a surrendered community on mission that God might be worshiped. God, we would just love if there'd be another day in temple where you can't go to lunch somewhere on a weekday and not see men or women studying the Bible together. God, we would just love if moms and dads were pouring the gospel back into their children and that's just the norm in this body and other bodies in this city and county. God, we would love it if all the more the poor get fed, the vulnerable are cared for and the name of Jesus is just magnified here. 
Are you rising up to go? A lot of you are. Some of you wonder, what is my role? And there are plenty for you. We're gonna see that in Ezra chapter two. Last thing we see in Ezra chapter one, God restored what had been taken away. Verse seven, Cyrus brought the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. I I don't know if we can imagine, well, just what an amazing day this would have been. These vessels of gold, they used to burn incense, just they've been gone for 70 years. They're old people that probably thought these are gone away. We'll never worship God right in Jerusalem again. And Cyrus brings it back. And for him, there's monetary value. For the people, there's this value of worship. A thousand basins of silver, 30 basins of gold, 30 bowls of gold, 5,400 vessels and all. God restores what's been broken. See, the outside world is looking at the Israelites and for all intents and purposes, It really seems like Israel's God is not with them. They've been defeated and dragged away from their home. Their temple's been destroyed. Their city wall's been torn down. Those who stayed behind were in dire circumstances. See, they've historically been a people with a purpose to spread God's image over all the earth. They've had a place, the temple where they worshiped, and they've had God's presence, and it seems like they're void of all three but God is with his people and the whole world is gonna see it. See, he has stirred their spirit. They've got his presence. He's sending them back to a place, go rebuild the temple. And there's a purpose. There's a purpose for his glory, for his fame, for their good. See, the God who sovereignly guided his people's exile through one king is gonna now sovereignly guide their reentry through another king. Jeremiah said it would happen. Austin told us that last week. And when you see Jeremiah says it's gonna happen and it happens, what you know is God can be trusted. But it wasn't just Jeremiah that said it. Isaiah said it. Ezekiel said it. Zechariah said it. Isaiah 44 24 through about 45, one, thus says the Lord, your redeemer who formed you from the womb. I'm the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners. I turn wise men back and make their knowledge foolish. I confirm the word of my servant and fulfill the counsel of my messengers. I say to Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. Then look at Isaiah 44, 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundations shall be laid. Isaiah 45, 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed Cyrus, I will open doors before him that gates may not be closed. He says in verse 12 of Isaiah 45, I made the earth and created man on it. I stretched out the heavens. I have stirred Cyrus in righteousness. Why? He's gonna build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward. And we see it happening. The God who removes is the God who restores. Isaiah wasn't the only one who said it. Ezekiel said it. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will restore the fortunes of of Jacob. I'll have mercy on the house of Israel and I will be jealous for my holy name. Ezekiel 39, 28. Then they shall know that I'm the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations and assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining. God says, I'm gonna restore it. Jeremiah said it. Isaiah said it. Ezekiel said it. Zechariah said it. And it happens. See, some of you, you wonder, is he really here? Does he really care? Has he gone somewhere? Can he hear me? Does he care? 70 years in exile. God's still God. His people are still his people. He loves you. He's drawing you. You can trust him. Look at what Zechariah says. I will whistle for them and gather them in. I love that verse. I will whistle for them and gather them in. He's gonna woo his people back. I have redeemed them and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they're gonna remember me and with their children they shall live and they shall return and that is what is going to happen. Their sins are many. But God's like this father waiting for a son to come home and he sees him in the distance and he runs to meet them and welcomes them. He has a mission for his people, rebuild the house. Worship is the priority. That was true in the Exodus from Egypt. Let my people go that we may worship our God. It's true in this Exodus from exile, They're gonna go back to Jerusalem so God can be rightly worshiped. It's true when the real and true cornerstone, Jesus comes, he doesn't tell his people, build a house. He says, we are his house so that the nations may see what happens in and through God's house and they might worship him. So we repent, we return, we rebuild because the Lord is going to bring his people home. So what does that look like in Ezra and what can it look like in us? I think we can find some answers without reading this massive list in Ezra chapter two. It's about 50,000 people. It's about 50,000 people moving in three waves, but it's a large mass of humanity. And when I I thought about it, uh, what I thought about was the Talladega Super Speedway, which is really, really strange because I hate NASCAR. No offense if you like NASCAR, it's just I watched it one time and I sit down and after about 30 seconds, these people have made four turns and I go, what happens next? And my friend said, oh, they're gonna do the same thing for the next three and a half hours. I'm out, right? Uh, I tried to even watch the highlights and the highlights were just wrecks, just awful, horrible collisions. If I wanna see awful, horrible collisions, I go to Facebook, not NASCAR, right? But this last year, October 7th, I was going fishing, a sport that God actually loves, right? And I had to drive by the Talladega Super Speedway, October 7th, 2021. October 4th, 2021, a guy named Bubba Wallace won the Yellowwood 500. Bubba Wallace drives the McDonald's Mobile Columbia DoorDash Route Insurance 11 racing car. It's the number 23 for Toyota. I've never seen him race. 
but he won. I skipped past all the wrecks and I saw him holding this trophy. But in the wake of his win, if you drive by Talladega, there's just this massive area of grass, or it used to be grass. It was before October 4th, 2021. But it was just mud, it was stomped down, there was this ton of people who had gone there. There were about 500,000 crushed Coors Light cans and a thousand porta potties. And when I saw that, I began thinking about what it would look like for a mass of humanity to move a really long way. And so here's this mass of humanity and they are moving minus the 500,000 Coors Light cans and minus the thousand porta potties. And I, I think we might not can imagine what this journey was like. And that might not be a big deal to you, but that's a big deal to me. And I'll, I'll tell you why, because we live in a moment where generations just like to dunk on one another more than maybe ever. And I love and I'm excited about generation coming before or after me and the next generation that's coming after them. But I also love the generation that came before me. There were people that were praying for this place when they were 40. I don't mean 40 years old, I mean about 40 people. And they've lived and served and loved Jesus Christ. I was, was walking this last Tuesday with a friend praying in this neighborhood and we passed by John and Beth Shesh's house. They're in their mid 80s. And they were at Temple Bible Church before it was called Temple Bible Church, just faithful saints. We can't imagine what these people went through so that God would be worshiped. And maybe we can't imagine what previous generations have gone through for us so that God would be worshiped. Kind of a, a picture of the distance they traveled would be something near and dear to us, though many of us might not know it's near and dear to us. It's the Chisholm Trail, which just happened to go right near Belton, Texas. And from South Texas to Kansas, almost 900 miles in 1871, 700,000 cattle, and 5,000 cowboys went from south to north and back and it wore down the land. You can still see evidence of their river crossings today 150 years later. So here's this people returning. Can you imagine all these different people with all these different personalities trying to get along together? There's only two kinds of people on the trips, people who hate change and people who hate when it stays the same. I bet they did really, really well. There's a lot of division, as you know, in the church globally today. Just for instance, Presbyterians do not recognize the Archbishop of the Anglican Church. Anglicans do not recognize the Pope, the Bishop of Rome in the Catholic Church. And Baptists, of course, do not recognize one another in the liquor store, right? There's all kinds of ways People are divided. Listen, this mass of humanity, there's a lot I think we can learn from them. Maybe we'll start just with a couple of verses. We'll just read two verses and then we'll go from there and talk about what we can learn. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. So these are old people. They'd been carried captive and now they're going back. They've returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. And they came with Zerubbabel. What a name. Now Zerubbabel is an awful name. And I don't mean that because it sounds odd to the English tongue. Zerubbabel 
to the Jews would have been a really awful name. It means offspring of Babylon. Now can you imagine that? You're going back to rebuild the temple of God. You meet someone new along the way. What's your name? Offspring of Babylon? Don't want my daughter to marry that guy, right? But I think there's something for us to see that God uses the most unlikely of people to help restore his worship. The first thing we see in chapter two is number one, God keeps his promise to his people. This mass of humanity moving back is the evidence of that. God keeps his promise to his people. He told them, I'm gonna send you into exile because of their great sins against him. And then he said, I'm gonna bring you back home that I might be worshiped. I'm gonna put my spirit in you and that's what's going to happen through their repentance. God keeps his promises to his people. Second, who are the important people in God's people? All of them. Every last one. For we, all of us together, are his masterpiece, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You might be the touch-up paint the body of Christ needs today. You might be the structural help that we need to continue working. Who are the important people in God's people? All of them. For as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though we are many, are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. See, there were people on this journey, if we read Ezra chapter two, there were temple servants, there were priests, there were Levites, there were people going to build There were singers who led in worship. There were people who gave to the cause each as they could. There were people who would start fires and people who would cook on their fires. There were people who were putting out fires among the people. There were people who were making sure kids made it safely across river crossings. There were people that were feeding camels and there were people that were cleaning up after those camels. It was a messy journey, but it was worth it that God might be worshiped. And as I think about these people, I think about our people. Just right now in this room, there's a lady, I won't say her name, because she wouldn't want me to say her name. But every Sunday after we leave, she walks through this place and she picks up candy wrappers and she picks up tissues and she picks up water bottles or whatever else we might have left. And she just does that as an act of worship to be a blessing to the church unseen. And I just find that beautiful. There are deacons and there are deacons wives who give their time as their husbands serve. There are door holders. There's a welcome team. There are people who are teaching children. There are students who are on mission together. There are small groups who gather to study the word and do good. There's a lady who makes blankets for every baby born in this church. Who are the important people and God's people? All of them. Last uh, last Tuesday, I was in a meeting. Our, Our elders were meeting and there are two guys there and one of them says the other, Mike, you've been, Mike Hagan's his name, you've been teaching medical students to know and follow Jesus for 35 years. Mike and his wife, they've been ministering to medical students and their spouses for 35 years in small groups, helping them to study the word, to know Jesus Christ, to follow him and tell others about him. 
Well, Mike looked back at the other guy and said, Bob, 35 years ago, you were one of those medical students. And now he's one of our elders. Who are the important people in the body of Christ? All of them. So I'll just tell you, Temple Bible Church, we need you serving. We need you connected. We need you on mission for the good of our city and for the glory of God. We want to seek the good of this place so that people may know that Jesus is Lord. The third thing we'd see in Ezra chapter two, number one is that God keeps his promises to his people. Number two is who are the important people in the body of Christ. And number three is there's proof required. There's proof required if you're going to be on this mission. Now it's different proof for us than there was for Ezra. In chapter two, verse 59, it says the following people came up. It lists those people and says, but they couldn't prove their father's houses or their descent whether they belong to Israel. And it lists off of them. Then there were these sons of the priest. They couldn't prove their descent. Verse 62, these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they couldn't take, partake of the most holy food until a priest consult Urim and Thummim. There was this process they had to walk through. Well, are you part of God's people? See, there's a new proof. Jeremiah described it, Ezekiel described it. God said, I'm gonna write my law on their hearts. I'm gonna sprinkle clean water on them and I'm going to put a new heart in them. Well, see, you, you can't be part of the rebuild really in earnest for the worship of God if you're not worshiping God, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you've not been forgiven by him. And then there's a fourth thing. God's people do not exist for themselves, but to display his glory in all the earth. That's why they were rebuilding the temple for the worship of God among the nations. How do we know this? Because that's why the temple was originally built. That was God's original intent. And, and they built it so that they might get back to their original purpose and ultimate destiny. When Solomon was dedicating the original temple in 1 Kings 8, he prayed. And he said, blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel. According to all that he promised, not one word has failed of all of his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. This temple's happening so God's people will worship. Their hearts will be fully his. Let these words of mine with which I've pleaded before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night and may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires. Why, why is Solomon asking? Why does he want God to maintain the cause of his servant and his people? I'm so glad you asked. And the answer is this. So that all the peoples of the earth it's 1 Kings 8, verse 60. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes, keeping his commandments, that the 
whole world, all the peoples, all the nations will know that the Lord is God and there is no other. Back then, God's people did not exist for themselves but for the display of his glory in all the earth. That was true for Solomon. That's true for the people returning to Jerusalem. That's true for us. God's people do not exist for ourselves, but we exist for the display of God's glory in all the earth. So as God's people, with his law written on our hearts, redeemed by Jesus Christ, here's what we do. We preach Christ crucified, and we visit those in prison. We preach Christ crucified, and we see families that are vulnerable, and we try to keep them together and sustainable. We preach Christ crucified, and we see families with needs for food and shelter, and we try to work with partners to get that to them. We preach Christ crucified, and we come alongside Hope Pregnancy Center that is seeing babies' lives saved, and moms and dads come to know Jesus Christ. And we preach Christ crucified and we see children adopted. We preach Christ crucified and we partner with churches all over the world so that Jesus will be worshiped. We preach Christ crucified and we send our people to the least reached peoples on earth. A young lady that grew up in our church and her husband walked up to me between services and said, would you pray for us? We're going with this organization next year and we wanna go to the Middle East or East Asia so that Jesus might be known in all the earth. And so we preach Christ crucified. We we follow Jesus to make disciples to the ends of the earth. And as we do, we see lives transformed by the grace and goodness of our sovereign Lord. So would would you bow your heads? And could I just ask, will you follow? Will you follow as the church rebuilds? Will you be someone who says yes to this reality that God's people do not exist for themselves, but to display his glory in all the earth? Would you be one of those people who says yes to helping the church make disciples to the ends of the earth so that we can see lives transformed by the grace and goodness of our God? Lord, would you help us to follow? God, would you bring repentance in us? Would you bring a recalibration of our minds? Would you... Would you center our lives around the glory of Jesus Christ that they might be fully and freely for his worship? God, would you move in us to follow you so that the peoples of the earth, among all the nations, but in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our homes as mamas and daddies, among our friends, that Jesus might be worshiped, God. Would you move in us? Would you stir in our spirits? Just like you stirred in the spirits of these people 2,400 years ago, would you stir in us that Jesus would be followed and magnified, that we might have joy in him. In Jesus' name, amen.